The rest of us will be in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 6. We're learning about the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6 is on page 811-811 in the Bibles there nearby. We'll recite the Lord's Prayer in just a moment. I'd like to read a little bit before we get going, though. We're learning about the Lord's Prayer, going line by line. It's a marvelous prayer. In fact, I learned recently that um, the Lord's Prayer and the Nicene Creed are the two things that uh, the Protestant Church, at least, is using in, um, in North Korea uh, and very dark places like that uh, to disciple because they can't smuggle in Bibles easily. Uh, and so the Lord's Prayer is very, very uh, helpful to memorize and to think through as a disciple of Christ. Matthew chapter 6, I will begin um, there in the ninth verse and read through verse 15. We're talking about this line, and forgive us our debts. As uh, we say it probably, forgive us our trespasses. But listen now, uh, Jesus says, pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven, give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I feel a need to pray for God's help, and I'm going to pray and ask, actually, because you've been sitting here a while, to stand, please. We're going to recite the Lord's Prayer after, uh, kind of as I, as I begin the prayer, I will lead you at some point. Just pay attention and you'll get it, okay? Uh, let's recite the Lord's Prayer in just a moment, but first let's just cry out for His help. Father in heaven, we need you to work in us to give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart for understanding. Apart from your mighty work, O great Holy Spirit, Spirit of Christ, we will remain dead in our trespasses and sins. We will misuse your prayer, misuse you, and then misuse others around us, maybe even ourselves. Forgive us our sins, which are many, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I pray now, as we will all unite in our Lord's Prayer, as Jesus taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven... Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for uh, praying with me. We're going to talk about uh, forgive us our trespasses. This is that one line. There's only a couple places in the in the Lord's Prayer where when we're where we're uh, praying, it even happened even just now, where it sounds like we're mumbling <laughs> because we have uh, differences of how we pray this. And and there's a, a variety. There's three key ones I hear commonly: forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. That's one form. I'm not going to have a show of hands to figure out uh, by voting which way is uh, the most common. Another one is uh, forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. 
That might be how you, uh, that's how I grew up learning it. Uh, or the more contemporary version of forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Now, we aren't in the church of Christ. We're not, those differences don't come from a conflict or contradictions within the church. I would say even in, uh, in some unclear places in pulpits, still we're clear on this, that Jesus Christ came to forgive us of our sins. And we're trying to express that in the Lord's Prayer. In fact, the differences in that verbiage as we have recited that prayer, perhaps your whole life you've recited it in one form or another, uh, the differences stem not from disagreements in the church on how we're forgiven or what that means, so much as Jesus himself uses different terms. He actually does. I would say he uses, in the rest of the Lord's Prayer, he doesn't really deviate in Matthew's uh, recording uh, by the Holy Spirit of what Jesus prayed uh, from that version of Matthew 6 and Luke 11. The only place that really we see a really change is how Jesus describes the word sins. He does use three terms at least, sins, debts, trespasses. And I would suggest to you that perhaps he uses three terms not because Christ himself was confused, but that he was quite earnest that you would get this right. That you'd understand uh, how to be forgiven, that you should be forgiven, that you need forgiveness. There are three terms there. The first one I wanted to to look at, and they all mean the same thing, by the way, forgive us our sins. We're trying to figure uh, that out. But but here's the thing. We have a major sin problem. Uh, You might say it that way. We have a big sin problem, and I know sin is, uh, I think it was Carl Menninger in his uh, book that was published before I was ever born, Whatever Became of Sin. And he's arguing that even before I was born, sin kind of got outdated. It's a term that's not used. And I would say, I don't know if that's true or not, but I can definitely say the sense of guilt has disappeared uh, in our time. The things that people used to feel guilty about as we have increasingly deviated from God's design for the human person, uh, less and less do people feel guilty, but their conscience is seared, just as the scriptures warned us. So sin is a problem, or you might say trespassing. Is a problem. We've gone, trespasses, crossing lines we're not supposed to cross, right? We, you see a sign that says, thou shalt not enter, you know, private, this is my space, don't go across this space. And as soon as you see a sign, you, you're very inclined to cross that space to see what's beyond the sign, right? That's the human heart trespassing where we should not go. And then there's the really poignant way of saying, he has, we have racked up a debt we cannot pay. A debt. So there's sin, trespass, a debt. I'll talk about those in a minute. Uh, I think this this problem of sin is pervasive. And uh, even in the last century, one man I appreciate in print, a guy named C.S. Lewis, he he noted in the 20th, 20th century, he's put it this way, the barrier I have met is the almost total absence from the minds of my audience of any sense of sin. If you don't know you have a problem, you won't know you need help. You won't know to look for a solution. If you didn't know you have cancer, you would have no reason to go to the doctor, perhaps. That scholar, D.A. Carson, who, uh, who wrote what I think are the best commentaries on Matthew and John's gospel, very helpful to me, at least personally. And, he, and he's often doing evangelism and outreach in the, on the universities, even to this day. He still does that in his, I think he's late 80s probably. Um, he's still trying to reach the lost for Christ. And he says, my continued problem is that when I go on the universities, that students have no sense of sin. They know how to sin well enough. <laughs> But they have no idea what constitutes sin. That's what he writes. They know how to sin well enough, but they have no idea 
what constitutes sin. Sin's a real trouble, a real problem we have. Uh, We don't always fully know it. I think probably every person above the age of four can attest to the reality of being caught in a lie by your mom or your dad. And what was your response? Let's add additional lies. (laughs) Let's add more lies and try to escape the consequences of doing what I knew I shouldn't have done. And we eventually, that house of cards, what does it say? It collapses, right? We get found out, right? I I think that's universal. Uh, I'm not going to have a show of hands, but I know I I have tried that. My my mom can testify to that probably. (laughs) Uh, Though I think she has thrown my sins as far as the east is from the west. Thank you, mama. (laughs) But man is really in trouble. uh, And we don't really fully know it. So Jesus uses several terms. I'm going to look at the verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 12 in Matthew's gospel. Here it is, I think. Oh, there it goes. I don't know if I did it or Tony, but either way it worked. Thank you. Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. That word debt in the Greek is this simply of a debt or one's due. If you, those of you who care, it's a phalame. It's a phalame. Uh, it is essentially uh, you have money or goods or services that is owed to a certain person. It's a unique word. It's used here in Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, and one other place in the New Testament, Romans 4, verse 4. Where Paul writes, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as what he is due. A debt that is due, what is owed to that person. So so debt, our sin, our problem is partly that we have a debt, we have an obligation, or or like you might think of it, an IOU, an IOU. The other uh, term that Jesus uh, is recorded as saying is from Luke's gospel, um, Will you keep, this is not functioning. Will you move forward to Luke eleven four, brother? Thank you, brother. There it is. Uh, and he uses here the word harmatia, which is the most common New Testament word for sin or failure. Forgive us our sins. The Greek word is harmatia. Sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, right? And there's that word debt. It's not the same word as Matthew's gospel because it's a verb, but it's the same root. It's that person who has uh, racked up a debt, racked up a mortgage, so to speak, a payment that's due uh, because of their sins against another person. Uh, The sin idea, by the way, is a Greek idea that comes from archery or from target shooting practice where someone misses the mark. You probably have heard of that if you've been in the church very long at all. You'll hear someone talk about how sin is really a missing of the mark. A missing of the mark. And one more term from Matthew chapter 6, right after teaching us uh, about uh, forgive us our debts, for we also have forgiven our debtors. He goes on, Jesus does in Matthew 6, 14 and 15, there it is, uh, to use the word that, that I think has become, when I moved to this part of, of, this, of the country, uh, I found and discovered that a great many people use the word trespasses. And so I accommodated and stopped using the word debts and publicly led in trespasses because so many of our, our, our Lutheran, Methodist, and uh, Roman Catholic friends and, and, and uh, those who know Christ that way uses the word trespasses, which is fine. Because Jesus said this, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your Trespass, And that sin, or trespass, that word means transgression. It means to slip or blunder. It means the action, it's overstepping a boundary. It's going across, across a line, morally or literally and morally. Like I said, a, a no passing sign, that kind of thing. 
So it could be said that we have these different terms to highlight the severity of our problem, that we have a debt problem, we have a sin problem, we have a transgression situation, and uh, we can try to double down on our things and try to fix it, but uh, we have a real problem. And so Jesus uses synonyms not to confuse us, but to clarify what he means by when he says in our prayer, daily you ought to pray, forgive us our sins, Father. Please forgive us our, our sins. He really would desire you and me to be very, very clear on this. Now, as soon as we think about sins, it's, I have to address one objection that most of us in our hearts at one time or another have brought up. And Jesus himself brings it up in the verse right before chapter 6 in Matthew. If you look in your Bible, you'll see it, Matthew 5.48. Matthew 5.48, he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount, and he says this, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, again, I won't ask for a show of hands, but haven't we all at one point or another said, well, no one is perfect, right? And so we thus excuse and justify continuing in, I won't call it sin because you don't like using that word, our dysfunction, right? our difficulty, the jams that we put ourselves in. Now, you may not like that three-letter word sin, but the reality, according to Christ, is just the same. Maybe I'll use a more common word, debt. You have racked up a debt, a, level, a box of IOUs. If you imagine a box somewhere in your house and every time you sin against God or against a neighbor or against your spouse or a child or a parent or, or your boss, whatever, you're putting another blank piece of paper that you have to write, IOU thus and such. IOU, IOU, you borrowed an extra pair of safety glasses or a stapler from the boss at work. IOU, a stapler. An extra pair of safety glasses. You see what I'm saying? Like, you're building up a debt slowly but surely as you live, and and saying no one's perfect just is inadequate. Why? For two reasons. One, because of the, the majesty of the main person you're sinning against, that being God, your Father. The creator who designed you, who made you, who developed you, set in motion and in place so many gifts and blessings for you, which you abuse. And secondly, because of how sin is contagious, it's like an interest, compounding interest, except not at the level in which we can save money. This is like hyperinflation interest. This is like interest that works at like triple digit percentages or more, two, three, four hundred or thousand percentage every year, like accumulating massive debts, multiplying, it ripples out. And you're saying, how could that be? Because sin is never done in a vacuum, by which I mean, when you sin, you're not just sinning against yourself, you're sinning against others. Even the most private sins actually are distorting your heart so that you become not safe with other people. The woman I know the best on this planet, she sometimes will say to me, watch out, Josh. When I'm around that man, I feel uncomfortable. Why? He didn't say anything, didn't do anything. Maybe he looked in a certain way. What she senses is there's something done privately that somehow has twisted him and he no longer looks at a woman safely, but looks at a woman as a wolf would misusing her, even in his mind or his attention. And I think the ladies in here know what I'm talking about. No sin is done privately. You cannot keep it to yourself, even if you are are successful in hiding it for some time, sin outs. It comes out, and usually in the most awkward and unfortunate times and situations. I'm going to read a, a short paragraph from a, it's a parable that's in one of my favorite books that was a, such a difficult book to read it took me two times to actually get through it because it's a long book it's a, a novel it's uh, by Fyodor Dostoevsky and the, the, the title of the book is The Brothers Karamazov I wonder any of you have read this book The Brothers Karamazov it's 
oh my goodness, I'm, am I literally the only, okay, assignment for those of you who like to read, now, you really have to like to read. It took me two times because there are so many characters, I couldn't remember who, the, who in the world was going on. There's just a lot of characters, so I created a cheat sheet to keep track of it. But the, he's a Russian writer, and he writes at a time when things are dysfunctional, and what comes out of this dysfunction, of course, is the Soviet Union and other things, horrible things, because already the human condition had gotten to this, uh, I would say, this putrid state, this vile position that Fyodor and other people in his time, writers, God give them grace to see what was about to happen, the corruption of sins of one person against another. And he writes this remarkable parable that in one paragraph uh, illustrates what I'm trying to say, how you can't keep sin to yourself. Listen to this parable. And if you happen to get the version of the book I have, it's on page 423. <laughs> 423. Yeah, it's a long book. Anyways, once upon a time, there was a peasant woman, and she was a very wicked woman. And when she died, she did not leave a single good deed behind. The devils caught her up and plunged her into the lake of fire. So her guardian angel stood and wondered what good deed of hers he could remember to tell God. Suddenly he thought, oh, she once pulled up an onion in her garden and gave it to a beggar woman. So God replied and answered that angel, You take that onion then, hold it out to her in the lake, and let her take hold of that onion and pull her out. And if you can pull her out of the lake, let her come into heaven to paradise. But if the onion breaks, then the woman must stay where she is. The angel quickly ran to the woman and held out the onion to her. Come, said he, catch hold and I'll pull you out. He began cautiously pulling her out. He had just pulled her right out when the other sinners in the lake, seeing how she was being drawn out, began catching hold of her so as to be pulled out with her. But she, being a very wicked woman, began kicking them and saying, I'm to be pulled out, not you, it's my onion, not your onion. And as soon as she said that, the onion broke. And the woman fell into the lake. And unfortunately, she's burning there to this day. The angel wept and went away, he finishes. Now, that's a rather poignant way of saying, the wicked woman, my onion, mine. And she sinned and caused others to fall with her. That's the parable of our sins. Now, if you don't understand what I'm saying, I'll illustrate this a little bit more in a minute. But when we do things, we don't do them in a vacuum. We impact other people. I myself have done things that you cannot undo. Things that you have said or done that irrevocably change the orientation, the legacy, the direction of another human being. And no matter what you might say and go back to them and apologize, you can't undo the damage. They have been deviated from one way or another. And if you're honest with yourself, you admit it was not for the good. It was not for the good. The woman who was hanging on to that onion that this, this gentle, compassionate angel was trying to rescue her, she was kicking some of the very people who were in hell because she had sent them there too in their response to her sins. Her children or her spouse or others. That is the jam that you are in. We owe a debt that is impossible to pay. It's not just because we sin in ways that are substantial and we're not perfect. It's much more profound than that. It's not just that we missed the mark. We are aiming at the wrong target the whole time. 
It's very profound, our problem. What are we to do? Well, Jesus teaches us in this marvelous prayer, and forgive us our trespasses. He says, forgive. You're to cry out to the Father, Lord, Father in heaven, please, would you please forgive us? Now, to forgive means to cancel a debt. It means to to overlook a trespass. It means uh, to take an arrow that's gone way off target and, and someone else to shoot on your behalf to meet God's target. There's a verse from Colossians 2 that really puts it well. Thank you, Tony. Colossians 2.13, we read this. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. With who? With Christ. With him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt That stood against us with his legal demands. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Here is this marvelous thing. You have this problem, this debt that you have incurred because you've sinned against your parents or against a neighbor or against a spouse or against a child, against the people who are closest to you. Just limit your attention, even just to those who you knew better, and yet you still crush them and hurt them in some vile way. Jesus is the answer. How can you possibly pay a debt? You have such a debt, it's so large, you can't possibly pay even its interest payments. But Christ paid the the debt. He is your sponsor. the, The record of debt, says verse 14, was canceled. How? By what means? Because it was nailed to the cross and it stayed in the cross. While Jesus went to the grave, and apparently the check was cashed. That's what it means when he rose from the dead. The check cleared the bank. Your debt is forever gone. As far as the east is from the west. Now think about that from this woman's perspective. Remember the woman with the onion? Here she is. She's thrashing about. Mine, she says about the onion, clutching the onion. Now what would have happened if she had clutched onto, instead of an onion, her good deed, which we all know from the scriptures that no good deed satisfies the perfection of God. You can't, there's no scale here. You can't do enough good deeds to outweigh your bad deeds. It's not like the Egyptians thought. As long as your heart is lighter than the feather, you'll be in paradise. No heart will ever get there. Right? So, so it's not a scale. She was clinging to the wrong thing. The parable illustrates that. Who is she supposed to cling to? Do you know what to cling to? The cross. You're to cling to Christ. What if in the parable, 2.0 parable, she was clinging to Christ and she's hanging on to the cross and and Christ is lifting her up out of hell, out of that horrible place, and she's thrashing about still. Actually, she wouldn't be thrashing if she was hanging on to Christ because she would know that Christ saves her utterly and perhaps he could save others who would hang on to her through Christ. What if her spouse who had, in reaction to her sin and her wickedness and her surly way, her constantly nagging and all the things that reacted, that he reacted in sinful heart too to her sin and he was now in hell. What if he had grabbed a hold of her? What if instead he looked and he accused her and said, you shouldn't be out of here. You did horrible things to me and I'm in this horrible place in part because of you. What would she say to him then? This is the marvel of the cross because not only does God show mercy, he sows justice in the cross. She she would only be able to say, 
You're right. But I can tell you this. I have turned to Christ in repentance and faith. And he has guaranteed to cleanse me of my sin. And to forgive me of my debt. And he can forgive you of your debt too. If you only will look to him and cling also to the cross. And if you'll refuse to, still justice is done. Because this is the reality of the forgiveness I have. It's not by what I have done, but what Jesus Christ has done. He died in my place for that sin. Do you see how justice is done? In fact, I would say more than justice is done because he's not only the son, as Jonathan said very well, of the living God. He is God himself. He paid what your sin incurred, the debt it incurred, and far more by the precious blood of the Lamb. So that even those who might accuse you one day of saying, yes, you got out, that's hardly fair because I'm in this jam. But you can point to Jesus and say, you can accuse me. But Jesus has promised not to be my accuser, but to be my mediator, my sponsor. And guess what? He can sponsor you too. This is the marvel of when we pray, Father, forgive us our trespasses. Because when you trespass against others, you are smearing that relationship. You're like flinging vileness on, the, uh, on, that, on that relationship. You're crossing lines and it creates this horrible problem. And it says in John 3, verse 16 and following, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. How can we pray, forgive us our trespasses? When you pray that, it means you are confessing, you're admitting that you have trespasses, that you have something that needs to be forgiven. And you're saying this, you're you're declaring this, you're requesting this of the Father in heaven who gave us his only Son. You are admitting and believing that God's provision in Jesus is sufficient for you. And no amount of, as Jonathan said very well, Pastor Jonathan said, what are you looking to to save you? What are you looking for your rescue plan currently? Your self-salvation project will never work. In our branch two, we talk about proclaiming Christ. And in that branch, a great discipleship system that, that, that lays out the gospel in detail and unpacks it. And the more that you unpack the gospel, the more rich you will be in Christ, the more secure. And you will know in that moment to hang on to the cross, not upon some onion And there's this concept called the great transfer where Christ takes off our filthy robes. He wears them on the cross and instead gives us his brilliant, white, pure robes. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Your filthy robes can be exchanged instantly for the righteous, white, and pure, perfect robes of Christ if only you ask. You have only to ask. Look, every sin, it says, that we will have to pay for every sin one way or another. Either you have to man up and say, I will cover this forever, or you'll have to say, I need a sponsor to cover it forever, Jesus Christ. Justice demands that. The people that we sin against are that precious, that eternal. Only through Christ will you ever be in heaven or be prepared or even be able to pray. And forgive us our trespasses. We often skip over that first 
uh, connecting word in verse 12, and forgive us our, our debts, forgive us our trespasses, as we are forgiven those who trespass against us. But the and is, it links this petition, forgive us our debts, to the what came before. The first half is all about Father in heaven, about, Lord, would you get your way, please? Would you be hallowed? Would your kingdom come? Would you have your will done? I know it's done in, in heaven, but would you bring it here on earth, even in my life, please, Lord? And then you make it real personal and you pray, give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts, and lead us not into temptation. You see those three? They all connect. All connect. All are connected to this concept of daily Daily we pray, forgive us our trespasses. What does that even mean? It reminds us that we are saved in two profound ways. One is the fancy word that the the, uh, theologians use, justification, which means not that you actually are righteous, but you are declared righteous. Your go-between, your sponsor, Jesus, met the standard. You will never and have not met the standard. He has, but he offers to be in your place. You are declared righteous. It's a one-time thing. Maybe the first time you pray the Lord's Prayer for real, That's when it began. That's when you had life. And in the courtroom, Jesus says, not guilty. And every time someone brings up an accusation against you, you say, but I'm looking to Jesus. He has forgiven me. That's justification. But that's not enough for God. He doesn't just want to have us declared righteous. He wants us to make us righteous too. That is, to put on the likeness of Christ. And that's this progressive A thing called sanctification is the big word. It's us being uh, squeezed, I'll call it, into the mold of Jesus Christ. Made little by little to look more like him. Now we are sinners and Christians are to pray, give us this daily bread and give us this day a forgiveness for our debts. Because we remain in the category sinner. I have said it time and time again, I believe it till I die. We never graduate in this life from the gospel. In fact, the only answer to every one of our challenges is Christ. I think maturity in Christ does not look like you getting numb to sin and because of Jesus you're like, ah. I'm covered, I'm good. That's not maturity. Maturity, as I see it in believers who are mature, they are increasingly sensitive to their sin. They're bothered by the, even the smallest of trifle of sins. Jonathan, Pastor Jonathan, again, he led us very well this morning in explaining that. 1 Corinthians 13 says, what does love look like? It keeps no record of wrongs. Another way of saying that is it keeps short accounts with his loved ones. You know what short accounts means? You admit immediately as you're aware of it that you fell short. Oh, maybe I used bingo in quite the wrong tone. He admitted that in front of us all, did he not? That's keeping short accounts, doing it immediately. Now, any marriage that's going to survive, you have to keep short accounts with each other. Right? Bitterness will poison any relationship and definitely a marriage. Unforgiveness, we'll talk about this next week, how that ruins our human relationships and certainly our relationship with God, as we'll see in a moment, or next week, I mean. But, but here's the thing. The maturity looks like sensitivity to sin. You ought to be increasingly sensitive to your sin today than you were a week ago and a year ago. But here's also maturity, and you know now what to do with it. That is that when you're aware of sin, you immediately appeal to heaven, and you apologize to those around you as well. What do you do? You go back to Christ. All those hymns, there's so many, I mean, there's tens of thousands of lines about how Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Uh, I surrender all. I mean, we could go on and on. Uh, my gracious God and master, uh, his blood uh, can make the, 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 the foulest clean, the vilest clean, right? His blood avails for me. On and on we see that. Lastly, and real briefly, when we pray and forgive us our trespasses, we immediately wonder who are the us and our 
And the context reminds us in Matthew chapter 5, at the very beginning, we are told who Jesus is talking to, who he's teaching how to pray. Seeing the crowds, Matthew 5 verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... Also in Luke's gospel, the same thing, Luke chapter 11. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, his disciples, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. So this, I know that culturally in America and the West, like the Lord's Prayer like kind of belongs to America, belongs to the West. Anyone can pray this, but not according to Jesus. This is a, a responsibility and a privilege that belongs only to the Christian. It is only those who are covered by the blood of the Lamb who know to pray this in the first place. You understand? This is not a prayer that, that is done for those who are outside of Christ. This is a privilege of prayer for those who are in the family, those who are adopted sons and daughters of the living God. And so we pray daily, Father, forgive us our sins. This is not a, jail, a get out of jail free card. I see that the Lord's prayer is often misused. A sinner knowing that he's going to be forgiven, well, just while well, I might as well indulge. That that's not the way this is works in the family of God, the household of faith. It's not an incantation, it's not a formula. It's a petition that teaches us that God cares not only about our salvation, but our fellowship. Because our sins disrupt the nearness of fellowship. That's true humanly in our relationships on this planet, and it's certainly true in our relationship with God. I'll finish with this passage, 1 John 1, verse 5. You probably remember verse 9. It's one of our Bible verses that we memorize. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Wonderful, wonderful promise. But listen carefully to the words around it. First uh, John 1 verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Beloved, I know there are many here who have very strong wills, because you're like me. <laughs> Can't you be stubborn at times? One of the, one of the blessings of, of Scripture is that uh, we have Simon Peter to look to. And you remember when Simon Peter was, he was on a boat, and they had a rough fishing day, and um, Jesus got in the boat, and he taught the crowds from the boat, because there was a lot of crowds pressed in at the, as the, kind of like a natural amphitheater. I've been to that part of Galilee and seen that area. It's beautiful. And he was in the boat, and after doing that, he sends Peter, let's go on out and cast our nets one more time. I know it's the wrong time of the day. I know, da 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 quit making excuses. Let's just try and see what I can do. And they throw the nets out, and they get a whole lot of fish. Remember that? Do you remember, though, what Simon Peter responded to Jesus, what he said when that happened? He fell upon his face in the midst of the fish, probably. Depart from me, Lord, I am a sinner. I am a sinful man. That's what he said, I'm a sinful man. He understood what it is to be a disciple, that he's a sinner, and he came to Christ. And Jesus said to him, uh, come follow me, Peter. I will make you fishers, a fisher of men. However strong you are, even Peter could, could pull 315 fish up from the beach. 
However strong you are, you still need Jesus. You still need Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your mercy in Christ. There are some here who've, who haven't really done, done business with you, have not really taken the full account of their sin or laid the bill at the table of Christ and recognize they cannot pay it. Their bank accounts are insufficient. Their good works will not work. Right now, as they're trying to figure out what to do, uh, help them to listen to my prayer and to personalize it. Father, even uh, recently, I know what it is to have the old man, the flesh, my sinful ways come out. Forgive me of my sins. I look to Jesus alone to cover my sin, to make me right with God and right with others, and to save me utterly. And since you have offered to save me, you now owe own me. And you are my master, and I will follow you wherever you bid. I am hoping, Lord Jesus, that as I follow you, I will look more like you. And as I look more like you and treat others around me as you would, that little by little, my relationships would flourish. That you, Jesus, would be at the center not only of my life, but of my marriage, of my family, at my workplace, in my community. That you would save me to the uttermost. And all that there might be a day that, as the parable said, because I cling to the cross and have been brought out of a, a pit, a fiery pit, that others, seeing Christ in me, will be drawn up to that you might save us to the uttermost from known sins and from sins we don't even recognize. Thank you, Jesus. Come back soon and banish sin forever. In Christ's name, amen.